And you can pick up a Bible. We'd love for you to pick up one. If you don't have one in front of you, in the seat in front of you, there's one in the seat behind you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one as our gift to you. And you can open that Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 to 9 today. And we're going to be concluding sort of a thought that Paul has been building upon over the last four sermons. And it's a very important uh, idea for us to get into our minds and our hearts and then hopefully get into our lives. And it's this, uh, that the Christian uh, life, in order for it to work right in our relationships, our horizontal relationships, uh, it's got to be working right in the vertical first. But in that, it can't be working right in the vertical and not have a direct effect on our horizontal relationships, on our human relationships. You can't have one without the other, that they're both a part of our Christian lives, and one directly affects the other. We saw it in uh, chapter 5, verse 21, when he says to Christians, uh, people in the church, submit to one another in fear of Christ. Then we see it again in uh, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as in the Lord. We see it in verse 25, Excuse me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Then we see it again in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then we see it again in verse 4. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And now we're going to see how the the relationship with Christ, a Christian's relationship with Christ, even goes into the work relationship, to that relationship between an employer and an employee, between a leader and a supervisor, between a subordinate and somebody that has authority over them. That our relationship with Christ goes into, spills into every aspect of our human lives, or else there's something drastically wrong with our relationship with Christ if it isn't. And so I'm going to pray and then we will ask the Lord to help us. Lord, well, we realize that we're no longer living in 60 AD and that slave and master relationship for us seems something totally foreign. And yet we're all under somebody's authority or we all have authority over someone else. Everyone in this room is probably in one of those two relationships. And so, Lord, would you help us to see that our Christianity doesn't just end at church, but that it uh, goes into the workplace, that it goes into um, our supervision of people, the way we run our businesses, the way we conduct ourselves amongst our fellow co-workers. Lord, would you help us to see that you call us to be a great witness to you, uh, not just into church, uh, not just in our marriages, not just in our parenting, uh, but in our workplace relationships. And Lord, some of us uh, need to really take that to heart. And it really needs to start to manifest itself in our work relationships. Help us, Lord. Help me, a simple man, to talk about this great truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at that first word. Chapter 6, verse 5. It says slaves. I just want to pause there on that one word and talk for a couple minutes. Let's be honest. 
about the world that Paul is writing to, that Paul is living in, slaves. It was a real thing. It's still a real thing. Just as the world in 60 AD, as we talked about a few sermons ago, was a very hard life for women, that women had very little rights, uh, that they were looked at as a thing, a thing that could be disposed of and treated in whatever way a husband determined she would be. She had no legal, really, rights to protect herself. Just like the world in 68 AD we looked at a couple sermons ago was extremely hard for children, uh, that they were looked upon by much of society as a nuisance, and that, again, they had very little rights to protect themselves. This was the world. This still is the world for many, many women and children. But let's not kid ourselves that the world for slaves was just as hard. The Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. That's the plain Jane truth of the matter. There's no getting around it. There was white slaves. There was black slaves. There was brown slaves. It was a nation, an empire built on slavery. Uh, they estimate historians that at the time of Paul writing this in 60 AD, there was approximately 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. One in 11 people walking around was a slave. And we think uh, that, that the majority of the church, in fact, for the first 100 or so years was made up of three main groups, women, children, and slaves, with a very small group that were free men. We think America's slavery was the worst that society ever offered up. And although it was brutal and it was evil and it was ungodly, over its 340 years or so of, of bringing slaves from Africa to the Americas, there was an estimated 12 million slaves brought. But that doesn't come close to the 500-year span of Rome's slavery, which there was an estimated 60 million people taken into slavery. Evil, horrible. But both of those groups, as brutal as it was, don't even come close to the, the, the greatest empire when it comes to slavery that ever existed. That was the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim Empire that lasted 900 years, which 200 years ago, one in five of their people were slaves. It was a brutal time. And we can be honest and say it's still a brutal time for many, many people that would call themselves, would be called by others as slaves. One historian writes, in the first century, Rome was the mistress of the world, and therefore it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to work. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Beneath a citizen's attitude to work. He says, practically speaking, all work was done by slaves. Even doctors and teachers were a majority slaves. Aristotle writes this, For a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. It's brutal, it's horrible, but it's reality. And we, we can't kid ourselves and pretend like it wasn't happening. We can't kid ourselves and pretend like it isn't happening now. 
the Walk for Freedom, which is one of the largest um, research groups out there studying, how, um, studying where the slaves are and what their life says, is like, says that approximately as of 2018, there was 40.3 million slaves in the world, 71% of them being females and children. And yet, the places where we see slavery the least are places where the gospel has gone in deeply and ingrained itself. And see, that's Paul's motive. You might say, why doesn't Paul just say slavery is evil and stop it? Why doesn't he do that? Well, we have to understand that the heart of the gospel has always been heart transformation first, and then social changes second. Paul's main objective was not to outlaw every evil practice that was done in the Roman Empire, but to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, see their hearts transformed, and by their hearts being transformed, social changes would come. And we see that. Any of the big social changes have come where Christianity has imprinted itself in the society. And so eventually, slavery would be outlawed. But it happened when many, many people's hearts were transformed. Just as Wesley and Whitfield 300 years ago, their main objective in preaching was to win people's hearts to Christ. But a byproduct of that was that slavery was abolished and that child labor was abolished, and that the elevation of women happened, and that the care for the vulnerable and the powerless happened. Social justice is never the main objective of a Christian. It's seeing hearts transformed by Christ. When we make social justice the main object of the church, then we lose the power to change hearts, and then we switch to education as being the answer, or uh, social movements, or, um, or programs, or more money. And I think we can all look at society and see, we've got lots of education, we've got lots of programs, we're throwing lots of money at it, but something's not changing. People's hearts aren't changing. And that's Paul's message. And so as we go on, I want you to keep it with that in mind. And I want you to replace, for our context, slaves and masters with employees and employers. So let's read it now, that first verse. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and in, in trembling, in sincerity of your hearts, as you work, would Christ. In your bulletins, you'll see there's uh, all the main notes, and you can, I've left some fill-in-the-blanks if that helps you uh, track through the sermon better. But the first point is this, a Christian's work is not for man, but for God first. A Christian's work is not primarily done to please other human beings, but it is primarily done to please God. And that's a common misconception, that our work life is separate from our Christian life. And we have this understanding that work is bad. And that, that work is a, is a byproduct of sin or the fall of man. But that's just not true. Because before God had uh, given Adam a wife, he gave Adam a job. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch 
over it. No, work is good, but work is done primarily for God. Everything we do, every job, uh, from the job that we think is least important to the, the most esteemed job in society, for the Christian, they're primarily doing it for him. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 17, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so the measure or the, the quality of work that God approves of is, is not necessarily uh, how much money you make or, or how fast you can get something done, but, but why are you doing it? Are you doing it just to please man, just to get more promotions for yourself? Or are you doing it for him? God is not judging us based off of what other people say, but what our hearts have to say to him. Are we doing a good job because we know God is watching, because we are his representatives, because we are his ambassadors? Those are the kind of things that God will judge the quality of our work on. And so the same message goes out to the Indian Christian who's collecting coal, forgotten about. The same message goes out to the Chinese Christian who's working as a maid. The same message goes out to the Colombian Christian who's working in the fields. The same message goes out to the Christian uh, who's working in McDonald's in Canada. Or the CEO who's working in charge of running McDonald's. The same is true for all. We work primarily not for man, but we work for God. And so, what would God say of your work ethic? Would he approve? Would he not approve? Verse 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers do, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Point number two. A Christian's work is a witness to those who don't know Christ. A Christian's work is a witness to those who don't know Christ. See, when we work for Christ, and when he is our primary object, that we would produce something that he would approve of, you know what? Others are going to take notice. Others can't not take notice. And one of the best witnesses that we can have is to live out that living for Christ in the workplace. Probably next best after living out a Christian marriage as a witness to the world is actually living out the Christian work ethic, the Puritan Christian work ethic in your workplaces. People will stop and take notice. People will not be able to just see you blending in with everyone else. We sometimes think that the best thing to bring your unbelieving friends to is a church service. Not so. A church service is primarily for Christians. But when you live out your faith in your work environment, that is one of the greatest witnesses, either positively or negatively, to the unbelieving world. It demonstrates really what's important to you. And it gives people an image of who Jesus Christ is. That's why Paul says, don't work only while you're being watched. Not what sometimes we find ourselves doing. The boss comes in and we start working a little harder. Right? We're in front of the camera and we think somebody might be reviewing that later. We work a little bit harder. Right? Paul says, don't do that. 
as people pleasers, as somebody who's just trying to please man, but as slaves of Christ and do God's will from your heart. When I became, uh, some of you know that when I became a Christian, I was still in the military, and then my last four years um, in the military, I was an instructor working at a base in Meaford. And um, there was not many Christians. I could say there was probably, out of a base of five or six hundred, there was probably maybe a handful of Christians. So not many. And there was this one who was an officer. I was an enlisted soldier. And, and we worked together, uh, not every day, but our, our, our paths would sometimes, our jobs would sometimes overlap. Uh, but this officer was known to be a Christian. And so when I became a Christian, um, they kind of put me in the same boat as him. Unfortunately, this officer had a bad reputation as a Christian. He was known to be a guy who had Bible verse on the wall of his office. When his troops would come in, they would see it. He would talk about the church he went to. And yet he was known to be very lazy. And he was known to pick his favorites. And he was known to put his work on other people to do. So much so that I found that his reputation was constantly coming on to me by identification. And he was not giving Christ a very good witness in the base. So much so that even though I was an enlisted soldier, I got to know him, and, and as he saw me as a Christian, uh, we had a little bit of a different relationship. So much so that I had to talk to him about it once and say essentially something along the lines of, Sir, your witness to Christ, your witness of Christ, is building Jesus a bad reputation on this base. And I would really encourage you to address these two areas and that we talked about it. So hear me. I'm not saying that, that we should go around in our workplaces and, and tell everyone about Jesus and, and, you know, and to stop working and just be witnessing um, and slapping people with the Bible at our workplace. In fact, I, I don't think that's necessarily the proper place for it because we're getting paid to do a job, right? And, and that's a reflection of us. And sometimes you can get Christians who sort of hound everybody at their workplace to, to follow Christ. And I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to, you know, be the weirdo Christian leaving gospel tracts in everyone's lunch bags, right? And, and constantly telling people they need to change because God said so. No, what I see is our witness. The way we live our lives, the way we treat other people is to be different. That, that there should be such a flavor and a smell of us that people stop and take notice. That, that we seem to care about them as co-workers in a way that isn't typical, so much so that we build relationships that allow us to, outside of the workplace, share the gospel with them. Where they invite us into their homes, where we invite them into our homes, and they say, what is different about you? And we're able to tell them. So, what about your coworkers? Think about it. If you're currently working, what would your coworkers say of the quality of your work? What would your coworkers say of the attitude that you have towards them? Are you a person who they would say looks at you as more valuable than themselves? Looks at them as more valuable than yourself? Or are you a person who puts people down, who makes them feel like that? The problem that the world faces is not an uh, economic problem. 
It's never been an economic problem. It's a heart problem. Simply giving people more money or better uh, um, work environments or giving them bonuses isn't going to turn them into better workers. It's a heart problem. And so if we get more money, it simply makes us more of what we already are. But when we're working for Christ, when he is the main object of our work ethic, then all those things are just bonuses. They just make us more of an example for Christ. Then we carry on in verse 7. Paul says, Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive his back from the Lord. The third point is this. The Christian focuses on long-term eternal gain, not immediate earthly reward. The Christian focuses on long-term eternal gain and not immediate earthly rewards. It's coming someday. Someday, everything that you deserve is coming. For some people, that isn't going to be that much. For people that are Christians that are just chasing after more and more of the world, unfortunately, that isn't going to be a ton. But for those people who are living for something greater, who are genuinely living so that they can represent their Lord, it's going to be more than you could ever dream or imagine. There's so many places that Scripture talks about this. Psalm 62, verse 12. O Lord, you will repay each man according to his deeds. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each man according to his way by what his deeds deserve. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Take heart. See, the Christian life, Christ in us, was never meant to, to give us an escape from the challenges and hardships of living in this world. But through faith in Christ, it gives us the ability to overcome the circumstances through faith in Jesus. Verse 9 switches, and Paul stops addressing the slave, and he now addresses the masters. This, I need you to get this. What he's about to say has never been said before. It is completely countercultural. He is about to ta- tell people who own other human beings how they should treat them. Verse 9 And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Whoa. That's big. How does that affect us? Well, let's put it in the employer, the supervisor, the leader's view. Point four, a Christian employer seeks the welfare of his employees. A Christian employer, a Christian leader, a Christian supervisor seeks the welfare of those underneath them. By the way you treat your employees or those underneath you, it must be a way that Christ would look down and say, I approve, I agree, I think it's great. You are representing me well. Imagine, supervisors, leaders, that that Christ is your CEO and he is evaluating your leadership. 
Every time you talk to somebody, every time you give them a demand, every time you require something of them, think about, would Christ approve of this action? The Christian leader is opposite to the world. The world says you're in a position of leadership so you can get more for yourself. But the Christian says, I'm in this position so that I can make Christ look good, so that I can look after the needs of these people. What a great honor if you're in a position of leadership, that you can look after somebody else, that you can build them up. And we get a great example of that in the book of Ruth. There's a man named Boaz, and Boaz lived in a time of the judges, and it was a harsh time. The world was not a nice place in this time. And so God had given uh, some laws, some ways that that the Israelites were supposed to treat each other as a nation that was totally different than the, than the surrounding societies. And he had made some rules, um, some laws that the Israelites were supposed to follow in order to look after poor people. And again, this was revolutionary. There was no other country that did this sort of thing. And one of the rules was is that, that when a person, a landowner, was harvesting uh, their crops, anything that fell off, uh, that was dropped, that dropped off the wagon, was to remain there so that the poor people, which there was a lot of, could come by and gather up on their own initiative to take home so that they wouldn't starve. Again, it wasn't like the gathered it up and left it there. No, there was something required of even the poor people that they would come and gather it up. Now the problem was that a lot of landowners didn't actually follow God and didn't actually listen to him. And they would just have their harvesters pick up the stuff that fell off and take it because it was profits, it's money. And so here is this guy, Boaz, he's a landowner, and there's this woman uh, who... Uh, his name is Naomi, and she has come back. She is a foreigner, and she has come into the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Ruth, and she is totally vulnerable. Again, there would be no protection for her. People could take total advantage of her. And so we read this about the kind of uh, operation that Boaz was running. Verse 3, chapter 2. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be on a portion of land belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to his harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Let's just stop there. Do you see the kind of um, treatment that Boaz, the way he speaks to his employees, those underneath him, those working for him, a sign of respect and honor. The Lord be with you when he sees them. He cares about them. He wants the Lord to bless them. And they seem to have this respect for him because we see it in the way that they treat those who are underneath them. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters? Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. She asked, Will you let me gather the fallen grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and remained from early morning until now, except that she rested a little while in the shelter. So Ruth has come to look after her and her mother-in-law to gather up the grain. Now she is a foreign woman. 
She is below even the Israelite women, the, even the poorest of the poor. She has no rights, no protections, and yet the harvesters, who are servants to Boaz, seem to understand the sort of operation that Boaz expects. He expects even the foreigner to be protected and cared for and looked after. Leadership comes from the top. And there's an attitude that flows down from Boaz through his employees and even those who are the most vulnerable reap from it. So if you're a boss, I ask you the question. If you're a supervisor, I ask you the question. What sort of an attitude would the people underneath say you have? Do they feel like your actions, the way you speak to them, the, the work conditions, the demands that you put on them, the pay that, that you give them, would they say that it's a sort of attitude that says they're valuable, that you care about them, or is it all about profits, would they say? Then he goes on to say something else without threatening them. Whoa, Paul, come on. I can't threaten the pe very people that I own. I can't threaten those who are under me if I don't think they're meeting, uh, living up to my example. Yeah, that's what Paul's saying, which tells us point number five, lead with respect, not by fear. Lead with respect and not by fear. And sometimes bosses can lead by fear. Right? Everyone is afraid of them. Everyone's on eggshells around them. Everyone's worried about they're going to get fired or, or they're going to be hated or they're going to go on the naughty list if they just mess up, if they're just not perfect. But history demonstrates that leading by fear only lasts for a certain amount of time. Eventually, people burn out, people can't take it, people quit, people go elsewhere, or people just rebel against that sort of leadership. We can see it in... in um, Businesses, we can see it in nations, right? If you ever wonder, how did the USSR uh, fall? How did communist Russia fall? Well, it was actually uh, because they couldn't keep up to the U.S. because U.S. was a free place. So if you had an idea, then you could uh, patent that idea and profit from it. But in Russia, if you had an idea or you worked hard, your boss would take that and credit it to himself and so eventually people just gave up and you can see that Russian productivity eventually tanked and the economy tanked. That's why you see nations like China and Russia, they're always trying to steal ideas from free places because they're over there they live by fear and so they're not nearly as productive. No, we are deprived what is fair. Fair. If you are a supervisor, you're to treat people in a fair way. Colossians 4, verse 1. Master, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. And so as a boss, as a supervisor, as an employee, as a leader, you are to make sure that your people, the people underneath you, are getting what is fair and what is right. We carry on. Paul says, because you know that both your master, both their master and yours is in heaven. Point six, leaders should be servants first. First. How do we do this? Well, we remember 
that we are first submitting to the Lord, as Paul has been hammering that into us over the last four messages. We are servants of the Lord first. Even if you're a leader, you are still a servant to the Lord. It's a different kind of leadership than the world offers. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 27. But Jesus called them and said, disciples, you know that the rulers of the, of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave. We see the greatest leaders of the Bible tend to be people that were once serving. Look at Moses. Look at Joseph. uh, Look at Joshua. Look at David. Look at Nehemiah. All people who are once in the low positions. And what I've, I've had, experience I've had, that the best pastors, the best CEOs, the, the, the best leaders tend to be the people who did those lowly jobs, who were once servants, who worked their way up, and they had a respect. I think some of the, at least, it can be very dysfunctional sometimes if somebody has no real life experience, they've never served, and then they get into a leadership position because they look at it as a time for them. But the best leaders are those who come into their position and say, I'm here to serve. I'm here to make their lives better. And I'm going to get down and build them up. Last couple of words. And there will be no favoritism with him. Last point. A Christian leader doesn't play favorites. Doesn't play favorites. And That's just human nature, isn't it? Our sin nature, that we always tend to play favorites, right? Maybe it's race. Maybe it's gender. You know, there was a a time when if you were a white male, you might get some benefits, some perks. You might be liked a little bit more. But now, it seems to have switched. And if you're a white male, well, that's working against you. And if you're the right gender or if you're the right ethnicity, you might get perks. You might get hired or promoted faster. None of this is to be for the Christian. No, we look at people, not by their race, not by their gender, not by whether they like the same sports team we do. No, we look at them as people, equal in value, worthy of respect, and we judge them based on their character. So Paul's been hammering this to us, that what happens here must seep into what happens here in the horizontal, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your honoring of your parents, in your relationships at church, with employees and employers. And I just want to close with this story. Nine-year-old Craig, this was like 15 years ago, this, this uh, was published. Uh, nine-year-old Craig was asked, as was the rest of his class, imagine you were on a first date and things started to go really bad and turn really sour, what would you do? I don't know what class this was a part of, but anyways, they asked the the class this question. But Craig's answer made the newspaper. He said, I would run home and play dead. The next day, I would call the newspapers and make sure they all wrote about me in the dead columns. 
And isn't this so sometimes the way that we Christians deal with conflict and our relationships? Right? So many times we as adults, when things aren't going right in our marriages and things aren't going right in our churches and things aren't going right in our workplaces, we just run away and pretend like it doesn't exist. But Paul has been reminding us, hey, the difference between us and the way that the rest of the world deals with it is we bring Christ into that relationship. We bring Christ in, and he is like the the oil. He is like the lubrication that makes that difficult, challenging relationship work as we submit to our Lord, we submit to others. And so... Is that working in your life? Is what's happening in the vertical coming in to the horizontal? That's what I want you to examine as we get ready to take communion together. Let's pray. And then I'll invite, and then I'll ask you to prepare for communion. Lord, I realize what I just said doesn't always work out the way I want it to in my life. And that I don't always treat my wife the way you would have me and I don't always treat my children the way you treat me and I don't always treat the people that I'm leading in the same servant-like manner that you treat me. But God, I want to do better. My desire is not to stay the same and I, I think that's the desire of most of the men and women in here today that we wouldn't be the same in five years as we are today, that in our marriages, in our parenting, in our church relationships, in our work relationships, people would see Christ. God, would you help us? To any of those who today are genuinely asking you to infect their relationships with supernatural love, kindness, and care, what I pray you would help them. Forgive us for the way we've not represented you well, and help us in our futures. In Jesus' name, amen.